the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 2, we do so with Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. He joins us uh, on Fridays to go over a lot of the kinds of stuff that are both at the intersection of culture and public policy. Pepperdine School of Public Policy is really one of the great institutions of higher learning in the world. And you can, if you are interested in a career in public policy, check them out at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete is one of my favorite people to talk to and one of our nation's well and most respected public intellectuals. Pete, it's a delight and honor to have you with us today. Great to be back with you, Seth. There's a lot going on, man. I don't know where to <laughs> yes, start. Man, <laughs> let, let, you know what? Let's start locally and, as the old bumper sticker said, and then get glo- go, start, lo- th- what is it? Think globally, act locally. Let's start with the yes. local. I saw, yeah. I, I don't know much about this person. Feel free to tell me more. Uh, Congressman, I believe you know, if I say his name wrong, you'll correct me. Is it Kevin Kiley or Killy? Killy? Yeah, Kiley. Yeah, Kiley. somebody I know. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you feel free to tell us about him, but the story he has helped to break open is fascinating about a secret Chinese-run lab in Fresno, California. You were retweeting about that. Do you want to say something about this? You and I have the same concerns about China, but this is new and interesting, too, I think. Well, and uh, again, not to go down a, a, a rabbit hole here and, and one that we've explored in the past, I have to say the dearth of coverage in the California media yeah. over this. I mean, it's taking our congressman's social media feed right. uh, to bring the attention that's necessary to this. It's a crazy story of a a lab that's been uncovered um, that apparently – um, is run by a, a Chinese company mm-hmm. um, that is running experiments um, using uh, the COVID virus and apparently other viruses on lab Gen- animals. Genetically engineered, let's add that. Right. And essentially running experiments on um, what we would believe happened back in the Wuhan lab, right? Exactly. Well, I mean, how, how, we're, how, uh, how does the virus spread? How quickly does it move from one to another? How, what are the modifications? I mean, essentially, the, the biomedical research uh, that we know of that happened at Wuhan, it sounds like something similar is happening in a lab that has far less security than even that one did, uh-huh. and obviously those measures... Uh-huh. Uh, I think most believe, uh, and I do, failed. But this is all happening in Fresno, California. The Newsom administration awarded this company um, $360,000 in tax credits, and surprise, surprise, the lab was operating without a license while it was committing numerous code violations. One story I've seen on it, fairly shocking, the USA Today reports, secret medical lab in California stored bioengineered mice-laden 
with COVID, and the CDC tells the Associated Press it is taking no further action into this matter. Well, that's comforting. Yeah. And again, it. I'm so glad that you brought it up, Seth, because I'm sure it's a surprise to some of, uh, if not most, of your listeners. I had no idea myself. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. No idea. Uh, and again, it's uh, Kylie's really making a name for himself. Good. That's definitely somebody you need to follow. Tell I got us a little bit him. about him. Yeah, no, tell us about him. Well, I got to know him back on the campaign trail back in 2014. He was running for a state assembly seat, which he actually did not win. Mm-hmm. Uh, he eventually went on to win, uh, I think it was back in 2016, won an assembly seat, went on to a state senate seat, and then recently ran for uh, the congressional seat. He's uh, a lawyer by training, mm-hmm. and um, again, uh, through his social media feed, which I, I very much encourage those to follow to first know that there are actually other Republicans in California, yeah. uh, even elected ones, but but ones that are being very effective. He's had some interrogations on a couple of the subcommittees he's on of uh, HHS Secretary Mayorkas, for example, and uh, FBI Director Ray that have been withering. Um, well, this so is what it's taking now. I mean, this is what it's taking. It's taking Congress. Yep. I mean, you're right. In a better day, it wouldn't have. It would have been. It would have been something the CDC would have wanted to investigate. It would have been something the governor or some administration uh, agency in California would investigate would want to investigate. It's not as if California is shy or embarrassed about investigating violations of regulations, is it, Pete? Not usually. No. <laughs> not usually. Right. That's right. why there were more. Ask, ask <laughs> most small business owners, especially during COVID, if there were uh, prying eyes around every corner when they were seeking to just do normal, legitimate, legal business, much less something like this. I was going to say, ask half of Arizonans. They know the stories of California because they're now Arizona. Right. You know? That's right. Um, but yeah, no. But this is this is an incredible thing. But this is what it takes now. So we talk about a career in public policy. Who knows where it's going to take you, and who knows what you'll be called upon to do? But this is a national security threat. It's a public health threat. It looks like it's a corruption threat, and no one wants to touch it. So Kevin Kiley will take it to Congress, and Congress will yep. investigate, hold hearings, and do something about it. That's what it's going to take. Right. It is, and again. Um a, a very effective communicator, um, both um, in speeches and in his questioning on subcommittees. Um, and he's put his finger on the right thing. And another subject, actually, in a, a measure that he actually has uh, a bill that he's trying to get passed in the House, actually connects to another subject. I've had him speak on one of our panels, um, actually, um, on the free speech issue. And this free speech on campus uh, matter is something that he's also very passionate about and actually has a, a measure, again, he's trying to get passed um, through the House right now. I want to so, talk about that. I testified yeah. to the state legislature here in Arizona uh, about mm-hmm. three weeks ago with Dennis Prager because at ASU, Dennis Prager was uh, slated to speak at a conference at, a, on a, at an event t- titled Health, Wealth, and Happiness. And 38 professors, 39 professors, you saw this, right? 39 professors out of 43 um, wrote a public letter calling Dennis Prager, the man who wrote the book on anti-Semitism and a board member of the Holocaust Museum, a white nationalist. 
and ASU directed the taking down of advertising for the event. The event was not allowed to be advertised. Uh, The professors uh, intimidated students in the classrooms, told them not to attend, uh, held protests over this thing. And, you know, again, in a better world, the Board of Trustees would have stepped in. The president of the university might have said something. They say they abide by the Chicago principles. But no, it had to be the state legislature. Same story kind of with your China lab, in a sense. The state legislature is now going to have to be looking at changing legislative language on, 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 on Arizona State's public universities and what they have to do to comply with something we call the First Amendment. But, yeah, this is what happened, exactly what happened uh, in California, right, that the Ninth Circuit just uh, came in on, right? It exactly is, and I've, I've also followed the story there at ASU around the, the funding of Skettle. Yes. Uh, there, the Paul yes. Carisi Center. Yes. and. Yes. Uh, the governor um, down there trying to make Doug a Ducey case at the to time, defund. Yeah. Oh, oh, yes. No, uh, no, that's right. Katie Hobbs, right. It was done Katie under Hobbs. Doug Ducey and Katie Hobbs is now right. Exactly. Right. And this is in the midst of a time when, for the first time in my memory, and we have talked about this before, but important to even bring some updates on this matter, where predominantly red state, in one case a purple state in in North Carolina, legislators are getting involved in launching free speech centers and institutes on their major public university campuses. So we've seen it in Florida with the Hamilton Center. We've seen it in Tennessee. We've seen it in North Carolina. We've seen it in Ohio. The University of Texas has now just an, a, announced they're actually launching an entire college Good. within the University of UT Austin that Good. is committed to founding principles and free speech. But here we are back in Arizona yeah. when really for a long time, and I know Dr. Carisi, mm-hmm. just brilliant scholar and leader, mm-hmm. um, to see what he's having to deal with with a, with a governor who uh, obviously has it out for having diverse points of view yeah. uh, presented and offered on their major uh, public university campus. It's really uh, disturbing. It's hugely disturbing, and it's so weird when I testified I just uh, at the legislature, some of the Democratic legislators, what they, th- what they knew about the First Amendment, what they appreciated about mm. the First Amendment, mm. was nothing. I mean, it was less yeah. than what people learned about in Schoolhouse Rock. Honest to God, it's amazing <laughs> how little these people know. These, you know, gosh, I, I was going to say they're learned ignoramuses, but they're not even learned. Pete, let me take a break, and we'll come back on some yep. other cultural issues. Pete Peterson is my guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Follow him on Twitter at Pete, the number four, C-A. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Website is publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. But if you go to his Twitter account, at Pete, the number 4CA, you can uh, get everything he's up to. Speaking of things you're up to, Pete, school semester's starting again. Uh, what uh, at the Pepperdine School will you be uh, featuring and highlighting uh, when classes uh, resume this this fall? Yeah, thanks, Seth. We're super excited. Um, we are uh, going to welcome Victor Davis Hanson back to be teaching with us as our new 
uh, Giles O'Malley visiting professor. He's going to be teaching a course on leadership. And uh, so that's going to begin in two weeks. And uh, also happy to bring back uh, Steve Hayward, uh, who's going to return also as a visiting professor, is going to be teaching one of our core constitutional history and applied history courses. And um, and so uh, he's going to be speaking at new student orientation here in about a week and a half. So really great to have uh, these scholars back. Uh, obviously, we have... Um, you know, our returning full-time faculty like Kyron Skinner oh, and no. Bob Kaufman and our economists uh, as well. So um, just really, really excited to get this uh, semester underway and, and see students returning to Malibu. Can you just, I want the audience to take a moment and just think about the privilege it would be to be in a classroom led by scholars like Steve Hayward or Victor Davis Hanson. I just, what a great thing you're doing, Pete. Just what an amazing thing you're doing over there. And, um, well, it's kind of you to say, Seth, I have to say that, you know, we have, we have friends that make it possible. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm honored that, you know, people that really could teach anywhere, um, like Dr. Hanson and, and Dr. Hayward and Dr. Skinner, uh, others, uh, have chosen, uh, to teach with us. And, um, in large part, I know when we were going through what can only be called as uh, negotiations with Dr. Hansen, I can say that, you know, it was the chance to, one, come to a place that was uh, supportive of his view of the world and way of teaching, but it was also the chance for him to engage at the graduate level with students that are just one step away from entering into careers in policy and politics and just being at that tip of the spear moment for students that uh, are all going into those kinds of careers. He wanted a chance to influence them. And uh, so we're just we're just so grateful to have these scholars uh, in and around the policy school. You know, it's that last part that I'm focused on for a moment. I'd like you to think about too with me, maybe Pete. These are scholars that don't have to be doing this, not at Pepperdine, not anywhere. Um, right. You know, they've they've oh, lived and produced a lot of work, and if they yep. hung it all up, you know, today or a year ago, it would have yep. been, as they say in Hebrew, Dayeno, it would have been enough. Um, yep. And yet they want to keep teaching, they want to keep teaching. You've probably been blessed, I certainly have, with teachers, professors, scholars who, you know, did it till practically the moment they died. And Indeed. there's something about that great teacher that never wants to stop training young minds and giving what they have. There's something yeah. about that, yeah? I completely agree. And again, it is something different about having this experience at the graduate level, Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, at the undergraduate level, which obviously is important and great, but you could be going into 800 different directions when you graduate. Yep. Um, the students that come here are focused on uh, going into careers in in public service, and um, and again, I think that's that's also a real attraction for these uh, faculty. Who you're absolutely right. It's not just about where to teach; it's mm-hmm. about coming to a place in their own careers yep. where they said, "You know, I've done it." Why, uh, why, why do they want to teach? They still that's have some, right. They still that's... have something to say, and they still think it's yeah. important. And you have students that think it's important to learn and hear. 
Exactly. No, well said. It, no, well it's said. a beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. The life of the mind and uh, yeah. those that are committed to it. It's just a beautiful thing to behold. That's, well, and especially when you're so close to applying it. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we yeah, don't want people yeah, yeah. to stay in that life. Although I think it's always important to have at least something uh, within that life where you can get away to. But for those of us who uh, are committed to careers in politics and policy. Uh, the opportunity to to bring that holistic perspective to what you're doing. Uh, I think you and I have talked just, there are so many problems in our political policy worlds today, which are founded on this focus on just current events and that there's, uh, you know, everything that comes up is something brand new and it's not as if we've ever encountered these problems before. And of course, there's nothing new under the sun. And that, that requires that kind of liberal arts education along with the quantitative quantitative uh, perspectives. And uh, I, again, just uh, very, very thankful I get a chance to uh, lead a program that's, that's forming uh, students and future leaders in this way. You know, it's an interesting thing just to connect it to the previous topic. Uh, these uh, universities that uh, are so disrespectful of uh, academic freedom and the first and the concepts behind the First Amendment and the First Amendment itself, if they had their way, these scholars, like you're mentioning, would not be on college campuses. They wouldn't be. You wouldn't have students being able to learn from the likes of Victor Davis Hanson. I sometimes think. Uh, if Harry Jaffa were alive today, he wouldn't be allowed to be a professor, you know? And what a shame, what a, what a loss of learning in a society like ours, that uh, students would be deprived of these great minds. And hence, your commitment to academic freedom and free speech is all the more important because students get to hear the Victor Davis Hansons of the world. I could imagine plenty of colleges in this country would not let Victor Davis Hanson speak. Yeah, no, I think that's... I think that's absolutely true, um, and and with that, many are losing that opportunity right. to learn from right. such a great mind. Right, so, right. Yeah. It's funny what these schools. One last thing: can I beat up on on colleges, particularly ASU, with you for one more moment? <laughs> you know, I was just thinking about the the testimony Dennis Prager and I gave at the state legislature. He was pointing out what is the academic fair at the Barrett Honors College at ASU, and he was reading the biographies of some of these professors. Uh, one of them, you know, was a non described himself as a non-binary individual. Uh, official ASU website: a non-binary individual whose preferred pronoun is they, and whose current project argues the transness and central central to queer and feminist science. He's the author of How to Make Love to a Kraken. Um, but he doesn't mm. use the word make love. He uses an F word. Oh, There's another goodness. expert on feminism and gender studies on ecofeminist approaches to intersections of speciesism. One is a scholar oh. of transnational settler colonialism. One does research in gender studies on post-colonial, uh, on post-colonial art and animals. And Dennis made this point. He said, is modern academia, do they do anything other than sex and gender anymore? You know, it's yeah. it's weird, yeah. Pete. It's weird. You don't yeah. have to comment. I'll, I'll say it. No, it's I, but, weird. It, but it, it it may lead to where we're heading in the future conversation, just about that becomes a platform by which we oh, can yeah. define ourselves. Okay, we'll do it on the other side of this break. Perfect. And is my guest, Pepperdine School of Public Policy. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is my guest. Uh, um, he is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. P- 
Pete, you and I and seemingly a lot of people finally found something we've lamented for a long time. I, I, I've lamented the fact that once in a while – well, no, let me, let me put it differently. Often in the 1970s and 1980s, there would be an op-ed or an essay in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal that would have life. That is to say it would be spoken about and discussed for weeks, if not months. There might be conferences around it. Sometimes it would even lead to a book. And that hasn't happened in a long time for a lot of different reasons. David Brooks may have given us one or two in the past week. There's a lot of discussion about mm-hmm. his opining, what if we elites are the bad guys here? And I think you were going to relate that to the previous discussion, yes? Yeah, well, and even the the piece that he wrote that came out today yeah. about this um, really leaning into Christopher Lash yeah. and his book, The Culture of Narcissism, right. um, the therapeutic culture, mm-hmm. um, you know, this, this understanding that we define ourselves. Yep. And certainly on the in the area of sexuality, if just seen as a way of, of personal identification, uh, the fact that in the eyes of some, there are apparently dozens of different genders, mm-hmm. uh, this becomes a way for people to individuate, mm-hmm. as they would say, mm-hmm. um, and to establish and define themselves uh, through the lens of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, the predictions that were made by thinkers like uh, Philip Reef or uh, Christopher Lash about their perceptions going back to the 70s mm-hmm. that we were moving into this culture where everything was the therapeutic, it was understanding ourselves by our own individual stories only as opposed mm-hmm. to uh, finding our identity through more uh, social, civic, religious, uh, familial institutions Mm -hmm. of which we are both uh, shaped by, but also responsible to. Mm -hmm. Um, Something bigger than ourselves, in other words, right? Something outside of ourselves, something higher than ourselves, especially if you add that religion or God part, which is a big part of it. The kind of thing that Tom Wolfe said was the very thing being dispensed with in the media. Right, right? and he was another. Yeah, no, that's right, that in the absence of of those institutions and and sets of relationships, if it really is the goal that we are to define ourselves wholly and fully, Mm -hmm. we can expect some of these kinds of behaviors Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this drive that has been exacerbated by a culture that says you really define yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that has left us with many of the social issues that, again, we've talked about regarding loneliness and alienation, that as much as you push to define yourself as the only person like you and responsible to no one and shaped by no one, and you're utterly responsible for defining and understanding yourself... Well, that that can leave you in a in a pretty desperately lonely place, right? And I think, unfortunately, we're seeing those kinds of uh, reverberations in a whole host of uh, social malignancies. Uh, very well put, articulately put. This is a short segment, Pete, and I wonder if I can plummet with you a little more on the other side in a, in a moment with a longer segment. But yeah, I think 
that culture of narcissism, that lash, and really that's what David Brooks is writing about most. He mentions Reef and Wolf a little bit, but it's mostly the lash series of theses um, that it's interesting. You, you think about that decade of the 1970s where so much of this was taking off, and it's about a generation now, isn't it, that has come mm-hmm. to the kind of thing we now describe as a mental health crisis um, you can add a dollop of this notion of safetyism as well, which I believe Brooks writes about, which is also about um, yourself, which is also about protecting yourself. It's about isolation from society. This right. isolation and this ab- importance of getting um, getting your own your own worth uh, reflected in the attention of yourself and to yourself has led to a serious crisis. It took about a generation to mature, but here we are. Let's pick up on that when we come back. Pete Peterson is my guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and uh, you can find out more about him at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson is my guest, dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. <laughs> Those lyrics were a little bit relevant. I couldn't help but pause on Linda Ronstadt <laughs> there for a moment. I don't want your empty mansions <coughs> with a tear in every room, just the love you promised. Connect it to Christopher Lash as David Brooks is presenting him, the culture of narcissism plagued by anxiety, depression, vague discontent, a sense of inner emptiness. The psychological man of the 20th century, could say the 21st century, seeks neither individual self-aggrandizement nor spiritual transcendence, but peace of mind under conditions that increasingly militate against it. That's the interesting part of that, that by, the, yeah. by the very mannerisms and means that militate against it. So, Pete, you've heard me say before— um, it's a curiosity of our time that when we have more access to more wisdom and more knowledge, not just in our schools and libraries, but in the very palms of our hand, when we are soaked in more money than any nation could have ever dreamed of ever having in the history of the world, we are at a real crisis of mental health, loneliness, depression, drug use, by the way, also falling education scores. But what's missing in this narcissism? What's missing in this social media? What's missing in this effort to get our self-worth through, uh, through these retractions? And it is that higher order, isn't it? It is the God thing. You can't get away from it, can you? The church, the family, the love. That's right. And I think about it in terms of when you disconnect from the vertical, those kinds of higher order things, your attention naturally goes to Things on the horizontal, things that are material, um, and things of self. Mm-hmm. Um, this, of course, was something that Tocqueville predicted, yes, right? Sir. Going back well. to the 1830s, he <clears throat> he definitely saw a time that with the increased wealth that he predicted was going to happen with the incredible economic freedoms made available in the United States, that people would begin to focus on those kinds of things and turn their attentions inward as opposed to the wonders that he saw arriving in the United States where Americans were so engaged in the building of their communities, whether in and through their churches or civic organizations, uh, certainly through their families as well, 
the importance of uh, civics education and and building these uh, ties to community um, that he saw a time, and it's arguable that we're we're living through it, where the attentions turned inward. Yeah. And at one point in that section in the second book of Democracy in America, uh, Tocqueville says that uh, there will come a point where if uh, the person um, turns his attentions inward, that he might have a circle of friends around him, but he will no longer have a native country. There you go. There you go. That's right. And and in that, you know, we the, the focus becomes about the self mm-hmm. and um, protecting the self. This goes to your culture of safetyism, mm-hmm. which uh, Brooks again mentions in this article. This is a big part. And he also mentions the work done by Jonathan Haidt yep. and Greg Lukianoff and, yep. and how much of an emphasis they put on uh, the period in the 1990s and early 2000s where everything was about play dates and making sure that parents were very much focused on uh, protecting their children out of some fear of uh, kidnapping or yep. other types of things. Um, you know, that that really does turn the attentions inward and in that uh, again, um, we are we are disconnected yeah. from those higher order institutions. I almost wonder if there was someone, another PhD, who got this perhaps a little earlier than Lash and Wolf. Um, I was reminded of a famous sermon, Doctor Martin Luther King, the Reverend Martin Luther King used to give, called mm. "The Knock at Midnight." Can I give you a little section of it? What yeah. Are the, what are the popular books in psychology? They are books entitled Man Against Himself, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, The Neurotic Personality of Our Time. What are the popular books of bestsellers in religion? They're entitled Peace of Mind, Peace of Soul. Who are the popular preachers? They are soft-spoken preachers who preach nice little soothing sermons on how to be happy, how to relax, how to keep your blood pressure down. And we retranslate the gospel to read, Go ye into all the world and keep your blood pressure down, and lo, I will make you a well-adjusted personality. <laughs> These personalities didn't come out well-adjusted, though. That's the thing, Pete, right? That's the thing. And we've known that, right? I mean, this is this is human nature that we're fighting against, our desire to be in community, to uh, seek affiliation, and through that affiliation, to seek our own identity. Right. And when those ties are cut and we're told over and over again, no, it's really up to you. It's up to you that, again, many of these writings that Brooks is quoting here out of the 70s, that's the known as we know as the me decade, right? right? right. Um, this focus on self, but that's also pressure on self to define yourself, yeah. uh, usually in relation to something else that used in another phrase, an other directed person yep. that Everything that you see of yourself is really in comparison to another person or an idealized self, um, as opposed to finding affiliation and love in the institutions that were built to to offer that, um, namely family, but also community, and to a, a larger a uh, more distant extent, but still there, the nation. Yes, right. I Listen, that me decade, you know, that phrase that Tom Wolfe popularized, it's amazing how many phrases he popularized. That's a fun exercise to go through someday. But the me decade, 
Um, it's interesting to go back and read that essay in its original. Uh, it was in New York Magazine, I think, in 1976. It's a little. It, it's tough to read um, because there's a lot of sexuality in there, by the way. But mm-hmm. it's a lot of the tying up of what cults were doing in California and with sexuality mm-hmm. and the dispensing of God and all about yourself, really kind of propelling out of that maybe modern feminist wave that was happening at the time where the personal was political. Everything was about the individual. That's what it was all right. about. And we ended up kind of ruining community. Was the communitarian movement Amitayitzioni and those guys, was that what this was some about, some of this about addressing some of that? Yeah, I absolutely think so. And okay. of course, Quest for Community with Nisbet and the yeah, more, right. if you will, conservative communitarians, yeah. they were still operating in the 50s, but they really came to the fore in the 60s and 70s um, as people were you know, you think about Robert and Habits of the Heart, those kinds of books were, were happening during this period as well. And I think responding to many of these same issues, absolutely. Well, folks, um, there's a few schools that still take this stuff seriously, and a few scholars and a few deans. Uh, Pete Peterson is one of them, and the Pepperdine School of Public Policy is the best at it. Uh, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, I love our visits, and I thank you for uh, spending some of your Friday afternoons with us. I really do. I wish you a blessed weekend. And to you, Seth. Always great to be with you. Thank you, sir. I'm Seth. I'll be right back. With bank failures and stock market volatility and a possible recession still coming and new inflation numbers out this week going in the wrong direction, what do you do? Where do you go to invest? Why Refi has a portfolio you can invest in. It's got a high fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to any of that stuff, not the stock market, not the Federal Reserve. A portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Why Refi. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Just check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. 888-Y-REFI-34. You can also stop by their offices. They're headquartered here uh, on Scottsdale Road in the 101. No one will give you a sales pitch. No one will ask you to sign a thing. And you'll really like them when you do meet them. David, we burned through a, a lot in our first uh, couple hours here. <laughs> yes, we did. Was there anything on our yellow sheet, so to speak, that was unremaindered business or unfulfilled business we had to cover? What did you do last night? What did I do last night? Yeah, what did you do last night? I, I, I did, 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 nothing. Do you know what I did last night? No, what did you do last night? Last night, I finally, after about three weeks of waiting, had my ticket to go see Oppenheimer in the IMAX 70-millimeter format. <laughs> you have been- you're going to kill me with this stuff. I swear you're going to kill me with it. Well, think, it's all over now, so we don't ever have to talk about it again. Did you it like it? Good. Did you yeah. like it? Very captivating. Um, I agree with the analysis that you and Hugh had, I believe it was a week or two ago, yeah. on the uh, negative portrayal, unjustly perhaps, of Dr. Edwin Teller. Uh-huh. Uh, but you got to see it in 70 millimeter IMAX. I mean, most of the time, it's sort of a semicircle. You know, it's somewhat theater in the round style. When you look at a traditional movie, you look up at the screen. Yes. But in this one, you're you're looking both up and down because there is both 
visual on the top and on the bottom yeah. in, the, in the way that you're seated, and it's just such a great experience. All right. Well, I think uh, our buddy Josh Hammer, who we're going to talk to, saw it too. We'll get we his thoughts as well. One, yeah. yeah, we'll consult him on all this as well. Gee, uh, what else? Uh, did you learn a lot from the movie? You did. Yeah, I, yeah. I learned. I learned a little too. Yeah. yeah, and there were some things I certainly didn't know. Um, and it's not a bad movie. It asks a lot of you, though. Three hours is a long time. Maybe it's easier yeah, than seventy it millimeter. But could have been a, a slight bit shorter yeah, yeah. um i didn't think it was as terrible in certain sections as some people said yeah it could have used an intermission though yeah i suppose so we'll yeah. have one ourselves right now an intermission right yeah now, we'll right be right in back the break. yeah three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal flynn told the truth he was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com <laughs> 